Hi everyone, and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and welcome to our first monthly roundup where we chat about our best stories, hot topics, and what happened in the advice industry last month. Joining me today is fellow reporter Alicia Hagopian. Hi. And senior investments reporter Nicola Blackburn. Hi, everyone. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, you know, it's been another busy month. Uh, the thing that immediately springs to mind is the consumer duty deadline coming up next month. What have you guys been hearing about this? Well, I think it's interesting because the consumer dead duty deadline is coming up next month, but we've actually not been hearing that much this month. You'd think that we'd be hearing a bit more because I'm sure, as we've reported in the past, that advisors are anxious about meeting this deadline. Um, last month, we, we spoke about how um, some research showed that I think only 59% of advisors or 59% of advisors hadn't started preparing for consumer duty. So, you know, hopefully that that number's changed. Um, but I mean, we had Holly Mackay and Ed Dimer on the podcast talking about how fair value is different for different types of customers. So, you know, that was a, an interesting podcast that we did. Mm. I think from an investments perspective, the biggest kind of change that we've seen that you could probably tie back to the consumer duty deadline is this like huge downward pressure on prices in the MPS space. Um, there was a report out by Next Wealth recently that showed over the past year, the average price, the like MPS price has gone down by 33 basis points in a year, which is a really significant um, drop down. And of course, you know, that that points to the fact that in the industry, there's this like uh, common idea that value is so often aligned with price. There's, but you know, as we know, there are other ways that value can be defined. So, um, yeah, I mean that that has to be tied back to consumer duty, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you said, with um, when we had Holly McKay and Ed Diamond on the podcast, um, you know, a lot of that was um, fair value in terms of what that means for clients in terms of fees, right? In terms of financial planning, but uh, in terms of um, you know investment and what fair value is for investment. I've never, I've not really considered how that will play out. Um, you know, has it been surprising the stuff you've seen in terms of NPS value? I mean, there's been a downward um, sort of pressure on NPS prices for a while, as there has been on the overall sort of space of investments used by advisors, I think. Like that applies to funds as well. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, and I'll come on to talk about this when we go into some other stories, but particularly with um investments there are these whole other questions around you know what is offering clients better value you know a lower cost passive portfolio example versus a portfolio portfolio that's maybe a little bit pricier but is tailored to those individuals specific investment preferences um so but i mean the mps market is huge and it's growing and so the fact that there's uh you know we're seeing this decline in fees um, is, uh, is is promising, I think, to a lot of advisors. It's a really good thing. Nicola, could you just give us a breakdown of the ODI Asset Management saga, please? Yeah, I mean, briefly, because it's such a big story and, and one that, you know, everybody's been hearing about. Um, so Citywide has been quite closely following the allegations um, first reported in the FT of assault and harassment made by 13 women about Crispin Odie, who is the founder of hedge fund firm ODI Asset Management. Um, and I think what's been most interesting to see is not only how the business has been impacted following the allegations and how kind of much attention they got, mm. um, but the first hints of how this incident will 
affect monitoring and regulation of sexual misconduct in financial services um, in, 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 you know, the time to come, um, as well as, of course, just the shocking scale of these allegations, you know, 13 women coming forward and speaking about this um, over a number of decades that they, they reported that these, these kind of um, incidents had happened. Um, I think the biggest thing to, to flag that's, that's happened uh, since those allegations came out was that the partners of Odie Asset Management have actually ousted Crispin Odie himself from the business, um, meaning he no longer has a, a stake or any personal involvement either um, in this this firm that he founded um, and in the billions of assets that they that they had. Um Many of the funds have been, or several of the funds, I should say, have been gated or closed as well um, in in the past few weeks. So it's, uh, yeah, and you know, the, the FCA are, are set to be questioned next month about the handling of um, these events. And, you know, it's, it's well known now that they've undertaken several investigations in the past into uh, Odie and, and, and the firm. So based on um, allegations of non-financial misconduct, so... Uh, yeah, it's had a lot of ramifications. These allegations were uncovered as part of a joint investigation by the Financial Times and Tortoise Media. Mr Rody strongly denied the investigation's claims. In other news as well this month, I understand um, the Retirement Income Advice Review from the FCA um, has been sent out to firms as well. Nicola, you've been on this a fair bit. Could you give us an overview of the review uh, and what questions are likely to come out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and more will be reported on uh, by NMA on this in the coming weeks as we, we discover kind of more details about what the survey entails. But basically, a selection of advice firms were picked and asked a series of questions about um, how they deliver retirement income advice. Um, and a key thing that we picked out was this focus on on fees, so we understand that uh, that the chosen firms are going to be questioned about their charging structures and their charging models for this kind of advice, um, and the SCA will take that into account, and we'll we'll see what they do with that. Um, but you know, there's been this focus by the FCA on uh, advice fees, uh, kind of recently. Um, so in January, um, the FCA came out and said they'd be focusing on how advisors deal with the price and value aspect of the consumer duty um, and would be kind of taking a look at whether firms were offering unnecessary ongoing services. So charging for unnecessary ongoing advice where it wasn't, where it might not be deemed of value to the consumer. Uh, so yeah, more to come on this. Yeah, so interesting. And I guess also it's that question of fair value as well with fees, right? And that's the, I think it ties in with consumer duty as well of, of having that focus on uh, whether fees offer fair value. Um, it's interesting because one of um, the potential implications for acquisitions will be um, a lack of integration with a lot of firms might catch up with them. Um, so that's something I've been hearing about um, on the sort of private equity side of things as well is that, you know, so many uh, private equity firms have acquired a lot of businesses. And actually what we kind of found last year with our analysis as well is that a lot of these businesses haven't been integrated effectively, meaning that the consumer duty will come along and say, pointed it and say well how does all of these different females and structures offer fair value so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well um in terms of other news nicola you know i think you had a, a vanguard story uh, a few days ago is that correct yeah indeed uh so this was uh broken about a week before we broke the story about a week before this podcast uh will be coming live uh 
it is the announcement that Vanguard have gone in-house with an advice firm for the first time uh, to launch a bespoke model portfolio service. Um, so this is all about, so they partnered with a Manchester-based advice firm called Rosebridge. And this is all about Vanguard kind of expanding their suite of investment offerings for financial advisors and how they, you know, expanding the way that they want to engage with this market going forward. So advisors will know that Vanguard have their life strategy funds. They have their life strategy model portfolio service and other MPSs. But now they're saying, look, we're, we are going to create custom portfolios for firms if they want to engage with us in that way. Um, so what the MPS will look like. So for this firm, Vanguard are providing the passive components, all Vanguard funds. And then they're also working with a investment consultancy, Reddington, who are going to provide the active funds to go in that portfolio. Um, and yeah, so I mean, from Vanguard's perspective, it's an interesting model. It's It kind of sounds like they're not expecting this service to take off and they're going to start working with loads of advice firms really quickly. It's just like one new offering that they're going to offer within this suite of investment solutions that they that they have for advice firms. I think what's more interesting about this is because Vanguard is such a huge provider of investment solutions, what is this going to do for that, what I spoke about, that downward pressure on MPSs in the market, particularly because Vanguard are known for their low-cost passive funds. Um, so... So, yeah, what one to watch. Definitely. And, of course, you know, earlier this year, um, the big news was that, you know, Vanguard closed that financial planning arm, as revealed by CityWire, um, on the back of sort of, you know, lower client numbers than they thought. Do you think this is a better a better move for them in terms of going after custom uh, MPSs? I think it signals Vanguard's approach to very much focus on their investment offerings for the advice community rather than trying to branch into financial advice. Um Interestingly, you know, they offer both in the US. They're obviously a US firm. They offer financial advice and they offer this suite of investment solutions, including custom model portfolios. But the US is a much bigger market, right? Um, I would, I will add though to, to kind of, uh, you know, raise more question marks. They did say uh, to New Model Advisor back in March that uh, they would look into, way, look into ways to tap into guidance and advice services in future they they weren't kind of completely closing that door oh, interesting. so uh, using the word guidance so i wonder if maybe a simplified uh offering in terms of advice and guidance is what they might be working on we'll, we'll see well i was actually going to ask but you you did just answer that question whether they're offering this mbs service in the us which if they are i'd be interested to know i guess you know how successful has it been there mm. and you're saying that they're not necessarily looking to expand very quickly in the UK, but you know, if they've done that in the US, maybe they will. But exactly as you said before, um, their advice arm in the US is very successful and profitable, and in the UK, it wasn't. Yeah, I think, and the other, so Vanguard did say, um, you know, this isn't a service that we're kind of officially launching. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, I, I didn't get the sense that they they were expecting a huge inflow of business really quickly into this this custom MPS um, offering. But in the US as well, it's quite a small part of their model portfolio service provision, the the custom offerings. In the US, uh, 
assets in Vanguard's custom model portfolios, they're at around £1.4 billion, um, which is $1.8 billion, um, but their entire MPS assets total $29 billion. So it's quite a small, small amount. Zach, moving into the platform tech space, uh, you wrote the story earlier this month that FNZ are or ha- have said that they would sack staff who are working from home uh, in a, in a, it was correspondence, I think, to their employees. Yeah, uh, that's right. That's, it, yeah. It, yeah, it was an, it was an email uh, sent to all staff. Um, I think these stories are always, always good for journalists because I think it hit a lot of beats that a lot of people are interested in working from home, you know, the last two years across every industry everyone's mm-hmm. interested in. Right. Um, but yeah, it was surprising. Um, I think, um, the, the sort of uh, the strength of language in the email used was, was quite um, was quite attention grabbing, I think. Um, uh, so they issued a final warning, uh, what well, they called it a final warning, to staff who worked from home for more than two days per week. Um, so they'd had a hybrid working policy of two days per week at home. Um, and then they'd said that staff had ignored this. But of course, the threat of um, terminating their contract um, was was the thing, I think, that got everyone talking. Um but yeah, I would like to ask you guys both, um, you know, if CityWire sent out an email that said, uh, this is the final warning um, in relation to anyone in breach of hybrid working policy will reserve the right to terminate their employment without notice. I wonder how you guys would take that as employees and whether you think that's quite a reductive way to frame this story. I think it's an interesting question. Mm. I think everyone probably has a different answer to this one. I think, well, personally at CityWire, it has quite a good hybrid working policy that seems to work quite well and people tailor it to their specific needs. But in general, I mean, you know, relating to the story that you wrote about with FNZ, if personally, if I was an employee receiving that email, it's not so much being told you need to be working in the office, it's the tone of it. And I think that I, I personally don't think that I would respond well to an email threatening that I will be fired if I don't immediately start coming in three days per week. But on the other hand of that, you know, working in the office environment is beneficial in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I really do think it's about about the tone of that. I guess to, to throw a question back to you, Zach, do, so, so how many times do we have a sense of how many times this had been flagged well, by fnz well, this, is the, this is the question start. and i think sparked a lot of conversation in the comments because we don't we just don't know okay. so in fnz's defense they've said that essentially um this wasn't raised by employees but they've just noticed that loads of employees have ignored it according mm. to them um so there's not a it's it's also a case of context right so there's not a i think it's very easy to look at this and say oh how dare you know how dare this company send this email? Um, however, we just don't know the backstory behind it. If any listeners have any thoughts on that, this, please feel free to get in contact because NMA has also covered stories in the past of advice firms who um, are offering four-day working weeks even or, you know, half days on Fridays. Uh, and it's it does seem to be, you know, you hear about the firms that are doing that. So it's this interesting, this convergence of one way or the other away from the hybrid, the hybrid working. I think it's also on the other side of that. I mean, look at the timing of this email being sent by FNZ. What have we seen actually a lot of in the last month um, in other citywide publications is, you know, firms like BlackRock saying, 
okay, enough, you're all in the office, essentially. That's been going on a lot recently. And it seems that once the the dam broke, in a way, a lot of these companies have come forward and maybe come forward with the policy that they've been wanting to have for a while, perhaps. So I think that it will be interesting to see whether this is a trend that will continue in financial services that it will be mandated to have four or five days working in the office, for example, or whether it will go back to a more relaxed environment. Mm. Yeah, that will be interesting. Um, you know, just moving on from me in terms of other stories, other things this month, um, you know, we've just had a couple of big um big businesses sort of almost up for sale really. Um so what comes to mind immediately uh, is this sort of saga with Advice Network Tenet as to their movements at the moment. Um, so they're currently undergoing a strategic review, um, which was, uh, I understand, uh, set to end in May. But of course, you know, we're now recording this in the middle of July. Um, so, yes, we were told that uh, from several sources that accountancy firm Deloitte sounded out potential buyers for Tenet uh, as the network reviewed its options. Um, now, this is an interesting story, I think, just because of the shareholders in Tenet as well. Um, those include Aviva, Aegon and Aberdeen. Um, and those shares have been impaired quite significantly um, in the last couple of years. Um, so this, you know, this business is facing um, uh, a lot of difficulty, I think it's fair to say. Um, and, you know, in an in a, in a environment where private equity cash is flooding in, um, it seems that um, some of these legacy networks don't appear to be uh, thriving. What do you think is next for Tenet? Uh, it's a really good question. Um, I think that they're trying to, they're assessing their options and they're going through a lot of restructuring. You know, their CEO was replaced a few months ago. Uh, the managing director, I believe, left for open work earlier this month. Um, so it's an interesting question as to what's next for them. Um their accounts don't make for great reading um, over the last year. Um, and I believe the, the ones for this year are delayed also as well. Um, so it's interesting. I think they're hoping that someone will come in um, and sort of save them. But I don't think that will happen with any of the private equity back consolidators, which is happening with a lot of them at the moment. It's a long way to go for Tenet, I believe. Um, it's in stark contrast to another sort of big story in the last month, uh, which was um, Perspective uh, kickstarting their sale process. Um, because Perspective has actually just done very well, I think, really. Um, so uh, it's quite interesting also because I think they've integrated their businesses quite successfully, their advice businesses that they brought up. They're a very active consolidator in the market, uh, and it was quite interesting reporting on their sale because of the number of sources we spoke to, particularly specialising in M&A. Um, a lot of them said that it would be a lot easier to sell and quite attractive to sell because it has integrated businesses. So it's a much more straightforward process. Um, they're not sort of looking around all, at all the different components and parts. They're seeing it as one business um, that has proven it's a very active consolidator already. It's very interesting with a lot of private equity cash swimming about at the moment, um, how that's changing things. Um, you know, Alicia, we've done a lot of work on this. Um, a few months ago, we did our, our massive analysis piece on it. And there's been a lot of spin-off pieces from that. Um, would you mind talking through a couple of yours? Oh, can, and can I quickly ask, um, what did your massive analysis piece on, on PE backers look at exactly? Zach, we've done a lot of work around private equity recently, specifically on private equity's impact on the advice space and, you know, advisors 
leaving and being attracted to different different um, consolidators. Um, but last week we published a piece that focuses specifically on private equity backed consolidation and its impact on platforms. And I think what's really interesting about that is that the sort of influx of private equity capital into traditional advice firms in a lot of instances has led to vertical integration, which means having, you know, everything under one brand. So a platform, advisors and everything in between. You know, a good example of that is True Potential, for example, which has been increasing its advisors like crazy in the last year. Some traditional platforms like Quilter, for example, have mentioned that they see this as a really strong and powerful force taking advisors away from their traditional platform networks. And it will be interesting to see whether this is something that will continue in the next few years, especially in the platform space as it is now. We've got about 34 platforms and that's constantly growing and shrinking. But with private equity capital shrinking the number of, of, of advice firms in the advisor market, could it potentially shrink the number of platforms in the platform market as well? especially with the phenomenon of white labeling that's been really increasing in the last six months and, and in the last year. So, um, yeah, I mean, the research is not conclusive on that yet, I will say, because um, although Quilter mentioned this in their company results, I would say that it's too soon to say whether these advisors are being specifically drawn to PE back consolidators or just drawn to other platforms. Do you think, um, how do you think platforms in general are feeling about that change in the market? I think that it's really driving the need for change in a way, but especially as Nicola talked about in the NPS space, driving the need for lower prices and lower, lower, lower. Um, and I think that in some ways that's a good thing. In some ways that could be complicated. Um, and at some point, you need to make a margin. Mm. So with the drive for prices becoming lower and lower and lower, not all platforms will be able to survive. And I think that that is definitely a concern. So on that note, another story we saw this month in the platform space was that several funds sold out of the platform transact earlier this year and then invested in other rival platforms, namely AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, and what was interesting about this was that we spoke to a fund manager and an analyst and they both they both pointed out that the revenues that AJ Bell and Hargreaves, among other platforms, are making on cash holdings really make them an attractive investment proposition at the moment. Whereas on the other hand, Transact does not currently take a margin on client cash holdings. Um, and it's quite a controversial and hot topic at the moment where the platforms should or should not return revenue on client cash um, but you know CEO Jonathan Gumby of Transact maintained that this was the correct approach for Transact but it will definitely be interesting to see how this will affect investment opportunities in the platform space since what is right or not what is right what is most beneficial for the client and what is most beneficial for investors in these platforms maybe doesn't match up. AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne, presumably, and we've written about Hargreaves Lansdowne before, I think, presumably they would 
defend and 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 you know fiercely defend the, the margins that they're taking on on client cash holdings well i think an argument that i've heard mm. from a platform who shall not be named is that a is that a platform is not a bank a platform is not meant to provide interest on cash cash is meant to be invested that is what a platform is there for that's mm. one argument and I do see the value in that argument in some way. But, you know, in the past year, investors have had or clients have had a lot of reasons to be nervous about investment, which is reflected in the fact that they've kept more money in cash and have been hesitant to invest in certain funds, for example. But at the same time, you know, this has been a very interesting year because the Bank of England interest rates have risen so dramatically that before platforms wouldn't have even earned anything from these in, from these cash interest rates and now they are so i think maybe what was the policy in the past should not necessarily be the policy now but you know whether that should be something that should be standardized it's it's difficult to say mm, interesting can i ask both of you guys a question in terms of the big pe investors in the platform space are you seeing any trend in like the major changes that platforms are taking on when they do get these PE backers? Like whether that be in terms of um, service, of costs, of um, yeah, even even stance on things like cash holdings. Like, are there kind of major trends that that come to mind? Well, I think Zach touched upon this, but actually, the fact that in our research from this year and past year that there's actually been a big lack of integration but between the different businesses that these PE backers have bought. That means that there maybe aren't actually as many specific changes happening as you would imagine, mm -hmm. because for those changes to happen, you would imagine that there would be a change happening across all the advice businesses. But I think that there's been a lack of that. But that, I mean, there have been changes, but I don't know what sort of salient trends could you pick out, Zarek? Yeah, in terms of the advice businesses. Yeah, I think there are two different models. This goes back to the um, podcast we had last week on acquisitions. We had the CEO of MKC Wealth, Dominic Rose, uh, talking about two different uh, acquisition models. And we hear that a lot. Uh, I hear that a lot from advisors all the time. You know, if this, there's a buy and build model and there's a model that just says aggregate as many assets as you can. Um, and I believe uh, Dominic re referred to it as the um, arbitrage model. Um, or sorry, arbitrage multiple um, where you buy it just simply not really designed to add any value to it. You buy a business just because you think the multiple is lower than the total multiple of that business plus this, plus this, plus this, the sort of consolidation, um, but but just for the aggregation of assets, right? Um, so most consolidators will go with, they'll say it, we're buy and build, we're selective. Um, so it depends. There are a variety of private equity firms, which you have to be careful of. You know, a lot of advisors I speak to, a lot of smaller IFAs, don't know much about private equity firms, right? So um, there's a stereotype that they're all the same. They're all, you know, just looking to be out in three to five years. They're all just trying to make a quick buck, basically, and they don't really care that much about client culture. Of course, the firms would say completely differently. And the case is more, much more complex than that. So it depends which type of private equity-backed firm um, that you're talking about. But there is, I mean, you know, with the amount of private equity cash at the moment, there is just a whole host of difference um, in the in the space at the moment. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, uh, I think that's about all we have time for today. So thank you everyone very much for listening. 
And thank you, Alicia and Zach. Um, if any listeners have any questions or want to kind of add their thoughts to any of the stories that we've talked about or the or the um, kind of ongoing stories that we've talked about, you can tweet us uh, at New Model Advisor on Twitter. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks very much again, everyone, for listening. Thank <laughs> you.